If you're brand new with us, uh, I just want to kind of catch you up to where we've been the last couple of weeks as we've sought to maximize our meantime. I don't know how many times, how many times I've heard this phrase, when things get back to normal over the last number of weeks. If I had a nickel for every time I've heard that phrase, I would be a rich man. But I don't want to live my life looking forward to what might happen or what should happen or what could happen. I want to live my life right now and maximize the circumstances that God has given to me. And I want that for you too. And one of the gifts that he has given us in this meantime, before things go back to normal, is the opportunity to hit reset, to reset some of our patterns and habits, to reset some of our practices, to be still a little more, to read a little more and pray a little more, and hopefully bring those new habits and practices with us when things hopefully get back to normal. So the first two practices that we've talked about over the last couple of weeks are discovering a life connected to God and others. That's what we want to do. We want to be people who are always pursuing an intimate relationship with Jesus. That means spending time with Him, praying, listening to Him, just getting out in nature and walking and, and thinking and spending time in solitude and, and really just taking a walk with Jesus in a lot of ways. We also want to be people who are discovering a life connected to others, connected to others, real, transparent, honest, meaningful, disciple-making relationships that help us to grow to become more like Jesus. So that's the first principle, discovering a life connected to God and others. Principle number two is dedicating ourselves to God's word and prayer. Now, Sundar Krishnan, our guest speaker, will be here the last three weeks of May, and he's going to do a deep dive into that, dedicating ourselves to prayer piece. But last week, we just talked about a very simple Bible study tool to help you reap truth from God's word so that we can be people who are dedicating ourselves to God's word and prayer. And today, we're on practice number three. And practice number three is declaring the good news about Jesus. Declaring the good news about Jesus. This is what disciples do. Now remember, the end game here is not the practices themselves. Rather, it's what these practices do in us, and they cultivate a discipleship heart. In other words, they make us people who reflect the character and priorities of Jesus in all of life. See, that's the end game, that we want to reflect the character and priority of Jesus in all of life. However, these four practices, we'll do number four next week, these four practices help us move in that direction. So discovering a life connected to God and others, dedicating ourselves to God's word and prayer, and now declaring the good news about Jesus help us move toward a heart that reflects the character and priorities of Jesus in all of life. So let's talk about this practice number three. It's just sharing a verbal witness about Jesus. It's telling someone 
about your faith in him. Now, I know that for so many of us, that notion and that idea strikes fear and anxiety in our hearts. And I just kind of wonder why that is. Again, as we prepared this series, Dave Lewis and I had this extended conversation about why would we be so afraid or anxious about sharing a verbal witness about Jesus, about declaring the good news about Him. Well, I think the root, the root of that fear is a lie. And that lie is this. I am responsible to convert someone so they don't go to hell. That's the lie that we're gonna combat today because you are not responsible to convert someone and the nature of the gospel is just not the avoidance of hell either. So let's do this. What I'd like to do is is try to attack that lie and dismantle that lie so that we don't have fear and anxiety grow up out of it. So let's dismantle that lie that kind of underscores our fear And then, just like we did last week, I want to give you a really practical tool straight from the scripture that might help you grow as you declare the good news about Jesus in your life. So, the lie comes in two parts. First, I am responsible. Friends, you are not responsible. The Holy Spirit of God owns sole responsibility for drawing people to himself. When it comes to maybe feeling like you can't answer all of someone's questions, you're not responsible for that. When it comes to thinking, you know, I really have to lead someone up to this moment where they close their eyes and say a prayer and repent and believe, you are not responsible for that. I have to remind myself of this sometimes, and, and, and I might not say this directly to you, but I would say this to myself. i say, Luke, you're not God. i say, okay, I know that. I get that. But, oh, but Yeah, but if you take that responsibility, that's God's responsibility. You're acting as if you're God. You're not God. That is not your responsibility. So let me just free you up and lift that responsibility off of you today and say, It is God's responsibility, it is God's prerogative, and it is God's desire to draw men and women to himself. You don't have to have a brilliant gospel story. You don't have to have all the answers. You don't have to have little quips and little lines and all the things that you feel like you might need to convince somebody that they should repent and believe. You don't have to have it. You don't have to have it. I'm going to give you something today, hopefully, that will replace that a sense of responsibility that's that's not accurate. And the second part of that lie is, see, I am responsible, that's the first part, for convincing someone so that they don't go to hell. And I think sometimes we don't want to talk about the gospel, we don't want to declare the good news about Jesus because it involves telling our friend that they're going to hell. Hell, hell, hell. That's how they said it when I was growing up in Texas. You're going to hell. And we don't want to tell our friends that. That's not fun. I get that. That's not fun. But listen, here's the great news. That's not the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus came to inaugurate a kingdom. He came to bring good and hope and healing. He came to restore that which was broken. See, I didn't say hell anywhere in there. This is Jesus that has come to be king and to be ruler 
and purchased for himself a people in order to set them on mission in the world to bring the redemption and renewal that God had originally designed. That's the nature of the gospel. And so when we start declaring the good news about Jesus, sure, hell is a reality and it's part of that, but it's a very small part. And so when we communicate the gospel that way, or when we think of the gospel that way, we, we've become so incredibly short-sighted and myopic, and we've really missed the greater uh, truth that is the gospel. And that truth is the truth of renewal and redemption. So this lie that prevents us from declaring the good news about Jesus, I am responsible for convincing my friends so that they don't go to hell. You are not responsible and hell is not the end all of the gospel. Let's think about the gospel and the good news about Jesus in its broad and comprehensive and multicolored view. Now, the second thing I think that happens sometimes is that when we think about declaring the good news about Jesus, what we think about is communicating biblical truth. And, and, and people have used gospel tracts. You might have heard of those before. People have used little pictures or even like physical things like to show people uh, the uh, gospel truths. Uh, there, there's this thing called the four spiritual laws that you may have heard of, and it's all about communicating biblical truth. That's great and wonderful, and I'm so glad there are resources like that out there. However, for most of us, that feels a little daunting. It can feel a little difficult. But what if I just said, you could just tell your story? That's declaring the good news about Jesus, your story. See, and, and the man who wrote most of the New Testament, he, he, he just told his story too. You want to see? It's Acts chapter 26. If you have a Bible, open it up to Acts chapter 26. We're going to take a look at the Apostle Paul. He's on trial before a man named King Agrippa, and he's being asked to defend his faith now. He's being asked to defend his faith. And rather than leveraging apologetics, Paul just tells his story. Watch what he does. Acts chapter 26, we'll pick it up in verse 4. Paul says, My manner of life from my youth, which was spent from the beginning among my own nation at Jerusalem, all the Jews know, they knew me from the first, if they were willing to testify, that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived a Pharisee. Stop there. Here's what Paul is saying. Before I met Jesus, I was a hyper-religious man. And I think religion and, you know, kind of doing things religiously, working out religiously, flossing religiously, those are good things. When Paul's talking about religion here, he's not saying it in, in a positive light. He was a very legalistic man. He was a very angry man in a lot of ways. He was a self-righteous man. He was a, a follower of the law to every dot of every I and every cross of every T. And he was proud of that. That's how he spent his entire life. So when the church came along and they started talking about grace and not law, that angered Paul. Here's his response, verse 9. 
Indeed, I myself thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. This I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints I shut up in prison. He's talking about putting members of the church of Jesus in prison, having received authority from the chief priests. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme. And being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Whoa, yikes. So enraged is the word he used. So angry that he's putting them in prison that when they're going to be executed, he's casting his vote against Christians. This was Paul's life before Jesus. And, and here's, here's just step one of telling your story. What was your life like before Jesus? Were you hopeless? Were you despairing? Were you lonely? Were you hyper-religious? Were you addicted? Were you internally conflicted? Did you have a difficult time engaging in meaningful relationships? What was your life like before Jesus? Even now, as you're thinking, as you're there in your home, in your kitchen, in your bed, wherever, maybe jot a couple of things down. Before you met Jesus, how'd you feel? What were you doing? What were you pursuing? What was your identity wrapped up in? What was your life like before Jesus? See, that's the first part of Paul's story. He just wants us to know. He wants King Agrippa to know. This is what my life was like before I met Jesus. Part two. Let's pick it up in verse 12. While thus occupied, going to put Christians in prison, as I journeyed to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priests at midday, O king, along the road I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun shining around me and those who journeyed with me. And we had all had, when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice speaking to me and saying in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, that was his name before he changed it to Paul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So I said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Part two of Paul's story. Part two, just how he met Jesus. He wants King Agrippa to know, this is what my life was like before Jesus, and this is how I met him. I'd ask you the same question. How did you meet Jesus? Did a family member tell you? I know for some of you, you just kind of popped into Bayview Glen Church one day as you were driving by and you met Jesus at Bayview Glen. Did you meet Jesus through Alpha? Did you meet Jesus uh, through someone who shared Jesus with you? How did you meet Jesus? Where were you? What was going on? Can you look back and name some of those providential things that happened in order for you to encounter Jesus in a meaningful way? That's step two. I would encourage you, again, just as I'm talking here, to jot some things down as they come to mind. How did you meet Jesus? So that's part one. Part one is what my life was like before Jesus, and part two, how I met Jesus. Let's move on to part three. Paul writes, or Paul says this to King Agrippa. He says, Therefore, having obtained help from God, 
To this day I stand witnessing both to small and great, saying no other things than those which the prophets and Moses would come, that the Christ would suffer, that he would be the first to rise from the dead, and would proclaim light to the people and to the Gentiles. He essentially says to King Agrippa, look, since then, here's what my life has been like. It's been different. I no longer put Christians in prison, but I proclaim the truth of Jesus. I no longer persecute the church. I am part of the church and I am serving the church. What change have you seen in your life? Before you were lonely or despairing or internally conflicted or whatever, and then you met Jesus, what's changed since then? What's your life like now? I know it's not perfect, but I know Jesus has made an impact. What's your life like now? That's part three. It's really, really very easy to tell your story and in so doing, declare the good news about Jesus. And remember, we talked about that lie at the first of our conversation, right? We talked about that lie that I am responsible for convincing someone. Watch what happens to this king as he listens to Paul's testimony. Paul says this to King Agrippa in verse 27. He says, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you believe. And King Agrippa said to Paul, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. In other translations, King Agrippa says, you think that in such short a time you can convince me to be a Christian? And Paul's response is, not, well, what questions do I need to answer or what's holding you back? Paul just responds this way. I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me today might become both almost and altogether such as I am, except for these chains. In other words, King Agrippa, I would love for you to become a Christian and anyone who's listening to me, I would love for you to become as I am apart from being chained up, which he was because he was on trial. See, Paul, the greatest missionary of the Christian church, the, uh, the author of most of the New Testament, even he does not take the responsibility. He just looks at it, this king and says, I, I would love that for you. And that's it. That's his answer. Friends, it's a great model for us where we can model our own stories after Paul's story of conversion in Acts chapter 26. And thus declare the good news about Jesus. So here would be my encouragement to you this week. Would you put a couple of thoughts down on paper? What was your life like before Jesus? Then how'd you meet him? And, and, and what's changed since then? And then tell somebody that story. Start with somebody easy. Tell your spouse. <laughs> tell your spouse. Tell a good friend. Tell your children that story. These people love you. They're not going anywhere. You don't have to be afraid. Start with someone easy and just tell your story. And then maybe as you grow more and more comfortable with telling your story of faith, then tell somebody who doesn't know Jesus. Tell them how Jesus has changed your life. Tell them what life was like before him and how you met him and what life has been like since then. And watch God now do the miraculous work of drawing people to himself. And, and just as importantly, watch him form your heart as a disciple as you engage in this third practice to reflect the character and priorities of Jesus in all of life just by telling your story.